This episode features themes surrounding domestic violence and homelessness. Some listeners may find this content distressing. Listeners' discretion is advised. It's not about um, the genders pitted against each other. Mm. It's actually about the gendered inequalities in the whole system. So today we speak to Katie Young. Katie has worked extensively with women and families experiencing homelessness and complex needs. Katie's experience and knowledge is demonstrated from her training in welfare services, community development and clinical psychology. Katie currently works within Women's and Girls Emergency Centre, a not-for-profit organisation that delivers a range of crisis and early intervention, accommodation and support services to women, children and families who are experiencing or at risk of homelessness and or domestic violence. On that note, it's time to talk housing and gender equity. Hi, Katie. Um, Thank you for joining us today and um, being part of this mini podcast series. We really look forward to hearing what you have to say in regards to homelessness and gender equity. So we just wanted to talk a bit more about your role in the organisation. We know you're a part of WageJack at the moment and kind of what your services provide. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. And also thank you for really, you know, through this podcast medium, shedding light on these issues um, for the whole of community. Because first and foremost, this is absolutely a community responsibility. But in saying that, I have the very greatest privilege of um, working at the Women's and Girls Emergency Centre or affectionately affectionately known as WAJEC. So I've been there for about over 12 years, um, starting off as a case manager, um, moving into management um, of operations, and now I'm the Director of Clinical Governance, which really just um, means that I sort of split into two roles. So I I am a trained psychologist um, and part of, um, well, all of that oversees everything I do, but I have a therapeutic role at WAGEX. So I support the staff um, in group supervision, so really looking at complex cases um, and in, you know, supporting them and them supporting each other around growing their practice and, and knowledge around, um, you know, um, practices and how to support our clients. Um, I also will be starting, which is extremely exciting, um, we'll be starting our first in-house psychological services for um, our children and young people, um, but I will be supporting the individual um, adults um, in a therapeutic sense. And then the other part of my role really looks over the quality. Um, so really looking around continuous improvement of our services but from a practice lens so making sure that we're really up to speed and understanding from the client journey perspective especially from beginning to you know hopefully exit into long-term housing what that client journey looks like and how we're supporting them in the best way possible um, for women and children to be able to um, you know move forward um, into their um, new independent lives and and start you know um, or continue to thrive sorry so yeah so a lot <laughs> wake check does a lot but yeah. it's awesome and it's a great place to work and we're we're led by an incredible CEO Helen Sylvia so yeah it's a great yeah. place to be um, and doing really good stuff so it sounds like you have a lot of really valuable involvement in social justice and you're clearly really using your knowledge and skills and applying it in your practice. Um, but in saying that, why is affordable access to housing so important for women? 
as you were as you were sort of coming in with that question then I think when you talk about access to affordable housing so therefore the the experience of homelessness for a woman you can't help um but you know be made aware of one of the biggest drivers um or one of the biggest factors in women and children experiencing homelessness is domestic and family violence so number one the biggest thing would be safety being able to really you know we all know the statistic, it's been floating around for years around how many times it's sort of, you know, in a woman's experience it takes for them to be able to leave a violent situation and that's got so many different layers on it as to why. Um, but one of the things that would would support that transition into a safe future and moving away from violence, which is such a strong um, and takes such a strength for women to be able to do um, is to be able to not have a barrier to affordable housing, which at the moment in New South Wales, in Australia, but in New South Wales where we work, is a huge barrier. So the need for accessible um, housing is number one primarily about keeping women and children safe and affording them properties that... Uh, you know, that are habitable, um, that allow children especially to not have um, so many disruptions to their schooling, to allow um, women to be able to, you know, in a stabilisation sort of a stability um, sense, be able to move um, towards safety, a life free from violence, um, and therefore be able to start their sort of recovery and healing journey um, and, and look, I can't say this or talk about this without really um, expressing, which I know a lot of us know, but it's just a basic human right, um, yeah. particularly in a developing country. I mean, it should be everywhere. I mean, I believe it's obviously everywhere. But in a country like Australia, it, it's a human right to feel safe, secure and stability. They're the things that a home gives us. Um, and if you've come from an experience of domestic and family violence, you haven't had those things. Um, you've been incredible. Women and children have been incredible in, um, you know, keeping themselves and their children safe. That's just such a huge strength. Um, but it doesn't mitigate, uh, it doesn't minimise or, or mitigate um, their experience of feeling unsafe all the time or feeling that sense of pain all the time. And so then to um, assume or think that women then leave um, they then experience very similar, very similar experiences to being in that DV relationship mm -hmm. when they're out trying to access support, when they're out, those same sort of oppressive, um, oppressive behaviours um, that have been enacted by the user of violence is what the women then, you know, experience within our systems, within our housing system, within our government systems, within our, you know, Centrelink and, and those yeah. sorts of things, Yeah. Yeah, and I think we have to remember that financial abuse is a part of that domestic violence. Up to 90% mm -hmm. have experienced it when seeking um, domestic violence services. And it comes back to that feminization of poverty. Mm, so I guess you're talking about the real social and political identities that can have um, an impact on discrimination and lead to risks of homelessness. Yeah, which again, when you talk about the financial abuse, um, 
you know, you, you talk about, well, wait, actually, if you talk about the intersectionality, you know, it's not just around, um, you know, identifying as a woman or being a woman in this in this world. It's also looking at the race um, that someone, you know, is um, identifies with. It's the socioeconomic status that um, women come from as well. All of these things are impacting and one of the biggest things around um, moving into a life of independence or a life free from violence is, yes, absolutely that access to financial stability, which apps has a gendered lens on it. There is a gendered imbalance to that, you know, and, and there is absolutely a, we- um, a wealth gap. Um, you know, we see a lot of women who may come um, into service, um, into our service in particular and services I know through networks in that sort of cycle of debt. And a lot of that cycle of debt is actually brought on or that woman's experiencing that due to the user of violence and their financial abuse um, that they've, you know, exhibited or or, um, or put, put on the woman as well. So there's just this constant feeling um, or, you know, we know really easily, we know being in this sector and and understanding this um, field, so to speak, Mm. um, none of this is the woman's fault. And I think that's what makes me so disheartened and and also what, you know, makes me work in this sector and want to support and work alongside women um, because these systems that the woman is working against, the actual experience of domestic and family violence itself are are also from long-standing oppressive patriarchal systems that our society has constructed and and we continue, women continue to fight against and live within. Um, So I was just wondering what your thoughts are on the biological and anatomical influence that fear can have on a domestic violence relationship. So I was recently reading an article in the Um, Guardian, and they were talking about the World Health Organization's European campaign, Health 2020, Um, and basically reviewing the idea that sex differences are not important and what's important is socialisation and culturation. So the counter-argument is that they're going to miss sex-specific sensitivities to stresses, and by not considering these, they may underestimate the negative effects. So I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, I guess the thing I'll still, I mean, without, I mean, having not read that article, I guess the thing that there is a gender imbalance. So, I mean, when you're looking at gender, that's maybe through a different lens than what they were talking about in the article. I mean, I think from a socialisation perspective, you have to think of all those things. Mm. So I I wouldn't say that you don't, you know, you need to talk about culture. We need to understand because in in someone's experience of their culture as well, there's um, oppressive states that they've Mm. experienced from you know, systems, um, you know, systems abuse and barriers to, to accessing um, support. Um, but I do think um, that definitely gender differences do play a big part um, if that's what they were sort of getting to. Is that what you mean? Looking at kind of that, um, the biological differences. So, for instance, if you're in a relationship and as a woman and you might have that fear that a man may be stronger or whatever it is and that's the reason why you uh, um, you wouldn't want to think about leaving the relationship because of that fear and the long-term ongoing effects that, that might happen, um, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, whether there are biological differences or not in regards to the fear response, what we do know about domestic violence is that it is a gender, there is a gender inequality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and it is violence against women is 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 driven by gender inequality. Just with your perspective as well, how would you suggest that we address these gender inequalities? Um, look, we, yeah, yeah, the gender inequalities, um, you know, there's a brilliant, and I don't know if anyone's spoken about this before in a, a previous podcast, but we really, um, you know, we look at um, the R Watch, which is, you know, an excellent sort of um, organisation, and they have um, the framework called Change the Story. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, whenever we're out and about talking to community, we would always sort of refer to this, um, and we would. T- talk about some of the things, some of the actions that we can do to be able to prevent violence against women. One of the biggest things we've been doing at WAJEC over the last 12 months and we're going to continue next um, year is really looking um, at promoting women's independence and decision-making. So one of the biggest things that, you know, around the power and control of the user of violence that the woman has experienced is, you know, that inability to make decisions about her life or, or, you know, the life of her family, Um, probably being quite isolated from family and friends or even isolated um, from being able to be financially independent, some of that financial abuse stuff we're talking about um, before, so there's a lot of things we can do to um, work um, towards the the other things that I can think we can really look at with all generations, but particularly is used with sort of children, young people in in the youth space, is around really challenging um, these gendered stereotypes and roles um, that have sort of you know happened over time. All of these things are social constructs, and and they're cultural shifts that we need to be patient but persistent um, and, and cultural shifts take, you know, they do absolutely take some time to change, so quite a long time actually. But, um, you know, but this is why we sort of, you know, keep doing this work because eventually this stuff hopefully will have quite a cultural shift in society and in the social constructs and how we construct things in, you know, in the wider society. Mm. Um, so, yeah, really being able to strengthen, um, you know, sort of, the idea of positive and equal and respectful relationships yeah. really, which which is so funny because when you say it, it sounds some people would argue that we've done so much in this space, you know, women should be happy, but that would usually come from a male colleague or friend or family member as opposed to, you know, really understanding a woman's experience yeah. still absolutely yeah. is gendered yeah. and, in, and imbalanced. So I guess using that lived-in experience of women in this in these positions, and I guess you could utilize that for early prevention measures. Yeah, like in saying that, that makes me think of um, so. There's been a few reports surrounding the fastest-growing demographic in terms of homelessness as over fifty. Um, and that can be due to like lower superannuation, um, unequal pay. So I was just wondering if those kind of demographics and statistics have been um, reflective of uh, the people who who come to WAJAC? 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so we, um, over at families, we would see it more when there's an extended family makeup. So, for example, grandma um, with mum and then, you know, um, children. Um, and sometimes um, just with grandma and mum. And absolutely they come to us yeah, with either no superannuation, um, very little to no savings, um, and then also if you think about um, sort of their history of employment would be very, very fractured. Um, most probably their employment opportunities throughout their life have not sat within the full-time sort of work. Um, and also the access um, to financially viable work being sort of in that um, age bracket these days, you know, it is difficult. It is really difficult for women to then try and seek work and they're absolutely willing and able, um, but to find something that um, would be able to support just even your sort of basic rent is really, really difficult. Um, we see women over 50 more obviously in the single women's refuge and, yet we all those things that you've just talked about around the gender wealth gap, the cycle of debt stuff that I talked about that usually comes um, from being in that domestic and family violence relationship. Um, and then, um, yeah, there are some great services doing some stuff for over 55. So we would, you know, have referral pathways into those services. Um, but the likelihood of women over 55 or even a bit older moving into employment, and they're so keen and so willing, um, it looks different. You really see more women in the volunteer space in over 55s or over mm -hmm. 60s. Um, you know, we forget that women have also might have dependence and caring responsibilities. Um, so being able to work full time is also a barrier because then there's access to childcare, which is a huge issue. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of, um, it's this ripple effect, really. Can I just, um, just getting into that, the access to resources for women in these positions are obviously um, uh, a lot less, I guess, reachable um things such as um sanitary products and maintaining certain beauty standards um to go towards job interviews and I guess mm. being you know accepted so the interesting thing is is um around the sort of material aid stuff that you're referring to there are some awesome initiatives out there um and so getting those sorts of donations for us um, or, or I know for lots of services as well, that's available. I think what we're seeing from the social, the sort of the interplay between these long-standing traditional social and cultural expectations of how women should present in the world, and, and so this example we're talking about now is, you know, looking for employment, that then interlinked or interplays with the experience of homelessness or the experience of domestic and family violence, you then have this sort of mental health impact, I think, that plays yeah. out as well. So these continual stressors um, and cumulative factors that sort of, um, you know, put stress and, and pressure. Um, and so, you know, for example, you go out, you 
try to look for a work and you keep getting knockbacks each time you go out for someone who's not who for someone who's just simply looking for a new job and and you know may not have all, and I'm talking in really simplistic terms here but for someone who's just going out looking for a job comes home has a home everything else is sort of stable in their lives absolutely interview rejection or job rejection is difficult no matter what but then you put all these other layers on top of it um, and it's just it wears you down and you wonder why people you know talk about oh she's they're not engaged or they're not really doing anything and it's like well what's the function of that behavior what where do you think that's coming from so instead of individualizing the problem at wager we really talk about looking at the systems as the problem yeah you know a holistic approach there yeah, and a systemic approach, yeah. like absolutely understanding. So, you know, from an individualised perspective, let's unpack and let's look at the function of that behaviour and, and what it's serving and then, you know, you look at the sort of motivations behind things. But then all of those sort of other things we just talked about, like the social and cultural experience, accessing the job market, there is an oppressive system that women experience um, that definitely is more oppressive in in the general population, not talking about individual experiences of males, mm-hmm. but in general for women, it's a lot more of an oppressive um, and inequal, uh, inequitable experience. So you have quite a bit of experience in the homelessness field. I was just wondering what strategies can we implement to change these attitudes and shift the dialogue? Attitude's a very interesting one. And um, look, it's not, uh, you know, I can go down rabbit holes sometimes um, reading, you know, reading things. And and quite some years ago, to measure, like attitudinal studies are are, are really difficult. Attitude's a difficult thing to measure. But in terms of when you were talking, then I was just taking some just thoughts down and the stigma, you know, so the stigma, that people have all these kind of embedded, so sort of two things, I guess. One is the stigma that, you know, people might have towards people um, who are experiencing domestic and family violence or homelessness. So one of the biggest ones, to be honest, might be, oh, well, why doesn't she leave? Or why didn't she leave before? You know what I mean? So people just being very, very uneducated around the experience of domestic family violence, the physiological, the psychological, um, you know, sort of all the impacts, the negative impacts that that someone experiences when they're in that um, situation. Also people's idea about what a homeless person is Mm. is also quite interesting. Um, So I think you could unpack it in two ways. So looking at that stigma and demystifying is what they sort of would talk about, demystifying these ideas um, around people's, you know, lived experiences is honestly just sometimes that awareness, so that awareness raising, which might have an educational component to it. I mean, one of the biggest things now, particularly with how we use social media or how, you know, in the COVID sort of era we're on Zoom. Um, I mean, connecting with community is probably a lot easier. Connecting to the wider community is probably a lot easier than it used to be. So even just, you know, we've talked about at Wayject, just even starting community discussions, those sorts of things, really using our social media platforms to raise awareness. Um, And interestingly, absolutely, I think, what's it called, the algorithms or whatever, 
when, you know, we're going to draw people who are already in that space. So the next thing for us to really think about is drawing in those people who, which, which is what you're talking about, drawing in those people who have those archaic ideas about what it is to be homeless. Yeah. Um, I also think when you talk about societal responses, there's a lot of prevention work we can do around challenging gender stereotypes and roles and also challenging condoning of violence against women. Placing the power back into the survivor. Yeah. I guess letting their story and resilience show the ability Mm -hmm. to change and... Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And what you're drawing on at WageJet, we've done a lot of work in the last few years around a feminist um, leadership model. And part of that was to unpack our assumptions. And one of the biggest assumptions around um, that is that the woman's experience is the primary source of truth. Yeah. Um, So really some of that storytelling stuff would be, you know, that narrative around a woman's experience um, would be amazing to be able to share with wider community. Um, Also what you guys are just nailing and talking about is the idea around, you know, it could be any of us. And that's also another one of our assumptions at WayJ. And I'll never forget, I started off, gosh, 20 years, 21 years ago now, (laughs) when I was nine, yeah, (laughs) when I was 19, um, I was... Yeah, I was at TAFE doing welfare studies and it was an awesome course back then. And one of my teachers just said to me, we're all one step, you know, we're all a dollar away from being, you know, on the streets or she said in the gutter. Um, but, but that same idea that it could be any of us. Um, and I really love what you um, you guys are saying. Like I really love that you're talking about, um, yeah, about that connection between us as humans that Mm. we all actually could experience this. And also the ridiculous thing is, is in some aspects, and this is where I find it really interesting, we all are, we all know with the statistics, we all know somebody, if it's not a if it's not in our immediate family, if it's not us ourselves, who have who is experiencing domestic and family violence, who has experienced sexual violence before the age of 15. Like, do you know what I mean? So it's wow. so interesting how people psychologically can just shut off to how big a problem this is and always think it's in someone else's yard or, like you said, mm. is around people who experience poverty. It's worse there. Mm. You know, it's there was a recent study um, and I actually haven't read it. Someone was sharing it with me the other day, some of the, but uh, um, a very high percentage of young males, um, uh, I think it was around 60, 65% of young males, a lot of the identifications of, you know, what constitutes domestic and family violence they wouldn't see as being yeah. domestic, like even just shoving a girl or slapping, like some of the physical, that traditional physical stuff, as we know, there are many more other areas of domestic and family violence. But when they did this study and the, these interviews, they didn't identify mm. as a lot of them being domestic and family violence. So, yeah, it's it, it's quite interesting as well. So as much yeah. as there's still some really good stuff going on, there's also some of these really, really entrenched ideas and thinking behind a lot of this stuff. Oh, yeah. And I guess it brings it back to we think we've done so much work, but there's so much more to be done. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, don't you get that? I, I mean, and it usually comes from someone, a male I know, like, and you know, and I, look, I do, I 
adore the the men in my life from you know from friends and family and whatnot. But yeah, those comments usually come from males going, "Oh, but we've done so much in that space," and I'm like, "Oh, I, yeah, like you guys aren't the ones that experience it." But yes, we have, but we've still got a really long way to go because there is still, you know, as we said, there's still a wealth gap. There's still barriers to accessing full-time employment. Women are still, and this just, you know, women still are the sole kind of, um, you know, have the caring responsibilities of dependents, you know, even when both parties work. And and absolutely there are going to be some family and households out there, and I know them and, and, you know, and I experience it here as well. Absolutely there are some families where that's not, you know, that's not the norm, where, where we are moving towards more of that gender equality in the household. But pretty much statistically that stuff still, it still falls on the woman. I think what you're saying there, it's about equity and not equality mm. to a degree. Yeah. yeah, and I and I think actually as you were speaking then, I think the thing and this is where also we need to target and this is where we need, you know, a whole of school approach, a whole of government approach, a whole of like from councils to state to federal um, because the, the, the possibility of all these kind of gender stereotypes and, and ways of we are in the world um, is perpetuated by the systems in which we live in. Mm. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's the systems in which we live in which kind of overpins or sits, you know, just metaphorically kind of sits above everything we do um, and I just think the, the, these systems also need to start looking at, um, you know, gender equality strategies within government programs, policies. Like I think if we started doing it in the wider community, do you know what I mean? Because I think yeah. otherwise, yeah, there, there's just so many facets to it and there are people doing stuff in all different sectors. So I think this is why it's a really interesting space to be working in and thinking about at the moment um, and, you know, to think five years ahead and then think ten years ahead. That's, you know, that's when we're going to see, you know, big changes as well. And it's not always big changes that matter, you know. For social change, we can just have small changes and a lot of small changes lead up to big changes. So it, I don't I don't feel disheartened by the stuff that we're doing, that others are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's actually really exciting because even though some of them might be really small changes, they will have a huge impact as well for individuals, for families, and then, you know, over time for community as a whole. Mm. Thank you for um, applying such a positive perspective on it. (laughs) <laughs> I have to. How else? How else would you stay in this game? <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. You've been such an invaluable speaker, um, and you really seem like you're an advocate for change as well. And yes, yes absolutely. Right that we can change, which is the morale we need at the moment. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for your time as well, and and um, having this discussion. It's really important. 